the old one who gets an occasional opportunity to preach the word of God when the other pastors need a break. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. My text this morning is a very short one. It's from the book of Acts. It's chapter 9, verse 31. The shortness of my text may or may not portend a short sermon. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Two characteristics, two features of a growing church. The fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with the Narnia Chronicles. One of the uh, false economies in our marriage 50 years ago was buying a paperback version of them. Uh, I trust it won't fall apart right now. In the Narnia Chronicles, there's a Christ figure, the great lion Aslan. And as those two sisters and two brothers were being introduced to the horror in Narnia that needed to be fixed and they were going to be part of it, they were to be introduced to Aslan. And they discovered that Aslan was not a man, was a lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is Jesus safe? Is your God safe? Our text here deals with a description of the early church about six or seven years after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended to glory. About six or seven years after that. Luke was probably not even a believer. Luke 
the author of Acts. He probably hadn't even been introduced to the Savior, the Messiah of the Jewish people, because the ministry, the expansion of the church to the Gentiles had not yet begun. The time of peace came as the chief persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, was brought by the Savior, the King, into his kingdom in order that he might take the gospel and lead the gospel into the Gentile community. So, how does Luke know to write about this? What Luke did, we're told in his gospel, is he sought out uh, eyewitnesses. He sought out ministers of the word, and he learned from them, and he prepared his gospel and the book of Acts for us. So there was some observers of the people, the redeemed people, the people of the way, the Christian community. There were some observers, and this is how they describe it. The church had peace, was built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Many of you will remember from American history that there was a, a French observer of the American democracy, de Tocqueville. Suppose there were an observer of the evangelical church in America today. Would they come up with this description of the church? Walking in the fear of the Lord? And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Is that a description that you would comfortably think applies to Wallace? How many of you, uh, I hope a number of you, this is a rhetorical question, read recently a, one of the missionary prayer letters from Tim and Weilon in East Asia about a Chinese pastor recently released from a long-term in prison and comes out of the church, uh, comes out of prison and is greeted by his people as a hero. He deflects all the adulation. He says, no, I'm no hero. I was so depressed that if they had offered me a chance to retract, I would have been tempted to take it. God's the hero. He preserved me. Is that walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? He's the hero. God's the hero. Well, I want to show you two things this morning. I want to show you, number one, the fear of the Lord is a continuing New Testament, New Covenant obligation for the people of God. In other words, don't just think of that as an Old Testament thing. Number two, I want to show you that the fear of the Lord is compatible with the comfort of the 
gospel, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I want to prove to you that Acts 9.31 is not an oxymoron joining two incompatible ideas, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Don't misinterpret that verse that Jamie used as the assurance of pardon in the worship service just minutes ago from 1 John 4, 18. Don't misuse that word, that text, as an excuse not to practice the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord remains. And then finally, after I've done those two things, I want to apply our understanding of the fear of the Lord to our Savior's life. Now, in order to explain the fear of the Lord, I think a very good way to handle it is to give you some instances, remind you of some instances where the fear of the Lord was upon some of the people of God. And I'm going to uh, major on the New Testament because that's where I'm emphasizing that the fear of the Lord is a New Testament concept. But it, all, it started in, back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Isaac was called the fear of Isaac. It's, it was there at Mount Sinai. It was there throughout the Old Testament. But it's also in the New Testament. Think for a moment about trembling Zechariah there in the temple courts as the angel announces to him that he and Elizabeth are finally going to have a son who will be the forerunner. Think of frightened Mary as the angel Gabriel announces to her that she's going to bear the Holy One. Think of the, the fretful fear of Joseph and the same angel Gabriel comes and encourages him. The fear of the Lord that uh, was there at the beginning of th those scenes about the incarnation and then moving into the uh, uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus and the early ministry of the Lord Jesus as he meets three fishermen, Peter, James, and John, and as he instructs them, throw your nets on the other side of the uh, boat, and they do, and they have this miraculous catch so that Peter and James and John are terrified, and Peter, the one who always talks first, throws himself on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord in the presence of the miracles of Jesus. Think about that, that fellow that had the legion of demons on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And as Jesus in his majestic power casts out that legion of demons, the, pe the local people who knew that character were so fearful of his power and his majesty that they said, please go away. Please go away. Think about the fear of the Lord for those three disciples on that mount when they saw their Lord transfigured. And then after Peter's foolish words again to build a little booth for Moses and for Elijah and for Jesus, the cloud comes over 
and they're terrified by the cloud and then they're really mortified with the voice from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. Or think about the arresting party in Gethsemane sent by the Jewish authorities with Roman troops backing them up. Seeking who? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus asks, whom seek you? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then in a majestic voice, he says, I am he. And the arresting party falls on their faces. John's gospel. Not to be afraid of, of God in his burning glory is irrational, is foolish. You see, fear is something that we are given as rational creatures to enable us to work our life out in safety. We don't let drivers drive who don't realize how dangerous driving can be. One of our grandchildren, not to be named, we were delighted when he or she started to develop a sense of fear, to realize the thing, this was a dangerous world. You see, it's a gift of God, this capacity of fear. It's both rational and it's emotional. It enables us to examine the situation and act responsibly in accord with reality. The fear of the Lord is talked about often in the Old Testament. The Hebrew language, and I don't think the Greek language either, has a word for religion. The closest that you find for the word religion in the Hebrew language would be the phrase, the fear of God. Where there's the fear of God, you could hope that there would be some kind of attention to the demands of conscience. Where the fear of God was, you could trust someone. And throughout the wisdom literature, we're told the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't change in the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we find our Lord Jesus saying this, to his disciples, to his disciples. I'm reading from Luke 12, but the passage is also in Matthew. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Lots of things to fear in this world. What's the most important thing to fear? God. Because he's the author of life and death, both in this world and the next. God is the most important thing to fear. Not your neighbors, not your bosses, 
Not the crowd that would despise you or make fun of you. Not your bank account or the stock market. The most important thing to fear is God. And that's followed up, not just with the words of Jesus, but with the apostolic tradition as well. And one of the more important ones would be this passage from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as Jamie's already taken some of my uh, punch here, this fear and trembling is reverence and awe. It's not terror. But it's still reverence and awe. Lest we offend a gracious God. It's not just in Paul's letter in Philippians. It's also in um, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It's um, where we are told, I didn't have one of those stickies in that place. We're told, since we have these promises, the promises that God is our God and we are his people, that we are sons and daughters to the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or, 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, why should we feel fear? We should fear lest we offend a holy God. We should fear because as we're told in 1 Corinthians, very bluntly reflecting some of the words of Jesus, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. We must fear because, as John writes in his first epistle, there will be a time when he comes again, he will appear, and when he appears, we don't want to be ashamed of what we're doing. I have some definitions of the fear that I want to give to you um, that are um, found from various sources here. Um, one of them, on the Old Testament, fear of God is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to do his father's will, its father's law. And then from a German commentator on uh, the first the passage of, of First Peter that he just read, to set ourselves under the righteous 
might of God to set ourselves under the righteous might of God. That's what the fear of God is. Or Philip Edge comes on 2 Corinthians 7, 1. In reverence and devotion toward him to whom we owe everything, in awe of him at whose judgment seat, we must give our an account of things done in the flesh, in dread, lest through carelessness or disloyalty, we should be ashamed before Christ at his appearing. 1 John 2. Behind this incident, this description of the church in um, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee was the incident of Ananias and Sapphira, where two members of the community of God had intentionally and willingly lied about what they were doing in order that they might look better. And you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They were judged and fear came upon the community. We serve a holy, righteous God. We're going to come to the communion shortly. And one of the things the Apostle Paul says, some of you have fallen asleep. That's the word that's used of the death of believers. You've fallen asleep because of the way you misuse the communion. Well, I'm going to get to the heart of my sermon right now. I wanted to give you a description of what it means to live in the fear of God. So, <laughs> this is the heart. To live in the presence of God constantly. To take to heart Psalm 139. I cannot escape from the presence of God. That is the first thing I'm using to describe the um, fear of the Lord. Living in the presence of God. Secondly, life lived in dependence upon God. Taking Jesus' analogy from uh, the upper room discourse, the, uh, the vine and the branches analogy, taking that to heart, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Remembering that we always are dependent upon him. Remembering like Nehemiah did. Remember the cupbearer in the Old Testament to the uh, Persian king who uh, was always supposed to look happy and delighted in his job as bearing the cup to the king. King doesn't want bad news. And he's just heard terrible news from Jerusalem and his face is distorted and the king notices and the king says, what's the matter, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah quickly goes and asks help from God. That was life lived in the fear of God, knowing that he could go and ask for help. The second point, 
Life lived in the presence of God, life lived in dependence upon God, and life lived first and foremost in relationship to God. We all have many relationships. We have relationships to other humans. We have relationships to our responsibilities in this world, our job. Our, our, uh, we have relationships to material things that we are to be good stewards about. But what's our key relationship? Not our spouse, certainly not our stuff. Our key relationship is to God. That's to live in the fear of God, to live in the comfort and the uh, fear of God. It, 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 it's my favorite um, creed. I probably used it once every six weeks when I was doing orders of worship. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. My first responsibility is to my faithful Savior who owns me, body and soul, in life and in death because he fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil and because I belong to him. Well, I'm getting into the comfort now. But the comfort only comes when you first put your relationship to him, to Jesus, to the to the glorious Trinity, the Father who loves you and sent his Son for you. Well, that was my three points from my sermon, okay? But I have another point I have to go through. Another two points, actually, I have to go through. The second point is the compatibility of the comfort with the fear. Every time, Every time, every time we're told to fear God, we're told not to fear. Every time we're told to fear God, the comfort comes next. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? It's God who works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. God is there, enabling you. The comfort. There's another passage that I want to read. It's from the book of Revelation. I mentioned that we all must give an account before the judgment seat of God. In the book of Revelation, there's letters to the seven churches. How many of those seven churches escape the Savior's criticism? Two out of seven, in my reading. One of those that does the most pearl, uh, it poorly is the church of Laodicea. Remember, the seventh church, the lukewarm church? Hear these words from verse, chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. That's Jesus speaking. Is that terrifying? No, not terrifying. No, we have to use words like reverence and fear. Not dread or terror. 
But it is certainly sobering that if Jesus loves you, he's going to reprove and discipline you. He's going to be calling for your zeal in obedience to him and asking you to repent. But you know the next verse? It's a powerful verse that we use often. We just forget that it's connected to verse 19. It's this one. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You see, the command to fear and the, com and the comfort are both together there. Now, what is this comfort? This comfort is the comfort of the gospel. This comfort is the comfort that God is our God. We are his people. We are united to him through the work of our Savior Jesus. We are safe. The good shepherd has called. If we hear his voice, he says, anyone who hears my voice and receives me, I will never cast out. That's the comfort. You see, because we have that comfort, we need not fear the terror. Because that terror was taken by our Savior. Which takes me to the last point here. Did Jesus, the God-man, your Savior, your pioneer, did he experience the fear of God? I want to read to you from... Uh, passage that's very familiar to you recently because of our Advent readings. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might. And now get this. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. On our Savior rested the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So if my description of what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord in terms of the presence of God in dependence upon God, and in your primary relationship being directed to God, if that's a true description of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, did Jesus live that kind of life? Yes, he did. For you, for me. His relationship to his father was primary. Read through some of those conversations of the gospel of John some of them are agonizingly difficult and what Jesus is doing there is constantly going back 
to what his relationship is to his father. His dependence upon the Spirit. The Luke's Gospel emphasizes how the Spirit of God is there constantly enabling him. He was aware of the presence of God. He sought out times of private prayer. He was all night alone on the mountain praying just before he names his 12 apostles. Dependence upon the presence of the Lord and making God first. Jesus demonstrated the fear of the Lord in terms of reverence and awe. But what about dread? What about terror? Did Jesus have that kind of fear? What do we learn from Gethsemane, that prayer of our Savior, who said, if it be your will, take this cup from me. What was Jesus anticipating? Experiencing the dread of tasting your guilt, my guilt, and suffering the punishment of a holy God. If that German commentator who def defines um, the fear of God as setting oneself under the righteous power of God, if that's a, a good definition of fear, and I think it is. I think it was the best one I read. Jesus experienced it there in Gethsemane. He knew what was coming. The terror of the righteous judgment of God upon not his sins, but yours and mine. Brothers and sisters, if you walk this next year in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, you will be following in the steps of your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, its power. Lord Jesus, thank you for leading the way, being our pioneer and tasting the judgment that was due us for our sins. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing the comfort of the gospel to bear in our lives, using this word that you inspired and driving it home in our hearts. Thank you that because we fear, we are comforted. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.